Let's open up our Bibles now together to Romans chapter 6. We are marching right along in the book of Romans. We are now to chapter 6. So we continue in our study of this great epistle. We're going to be looking this morning just at the first two verses of chapter 6. Chapter 6, again, uh, is kind of moving us into new territory now in, in Romans. And it feels, uh, it feels this way with every new passage we get to. This is really important. <laughs> this is really crucial stuff. Uh, and so we don't want to, again, our goal here in Romans is not like let's get through Romans as quick as we can and get on to other material. We want to soak in what the Lord has for us. There's such riches and such heights. We could study this book for 10 years and we'd never plumb the depths of all the glories that are here. Let's read, though, together now. Just these first two verses of Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Thank you for this good and precious gift that you have given to us, your church, that through your word we might hear your voice, we might actually know you, our God, that by your spirit working through your word, we could be transformed into the likeness of our Savior. Lord, even that which is dead called to life. I do pray, Lord, that your word would accomplish your good purposes by your spirit this morning, that which only you can do. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word. Let the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name. Amen. A name you may or may not be familiar with is Nicholas Sandman. He was a high school student at a Catholic high school in Kentucky who attended in January of last year the March for Life in Washington, D.C., calling for an end to abortion. And quickly following this event, pictures and video began to circulate of this teenage boy standing face-to-face with an elderly Native American man who was there in D.C. for an indigenous people's march. And in the pictures and video, as, as they began to appear, it looked like this boy was smirking and mocking this Native American elder. There was immediate public outrage, those of you that remember this story. Uh, immediate condemnation. Instantly, the press, celebrities, politicians alike were all issuing instant statements of strong condemnation, contempt, really, uh, for this boy and his classmates, who they said were racist hate mongers. News outlets then reported this teenager's identity. They tracked him down and reported his name and what school he goes to, where he lives. It resulted in constant harassment and even death threats. One CNN host famously said, he has the most punchable face I've ever seen. Well, many of you may know that story. You know that appearances can be very deceiving. Turns out Sandman and his classmates hadn't initiated this confrontation at all, it was actually a group of adults that began harassing these students 
as they stood outside the Lincoln Memorial. And this Native American elder, who himself is a known activist, actually approached the boys and got in the one particular boy's face and began banging his drum and chanting and yelling in his face, while the boy just awkwardly stood there with a smile on his face, not knowing what on earth to do. So eventually, several large, large news outlets, CNN, Washington Post among them, were made to pay millions and millions of dollars in restitution for their defamation of this boy's character. Appearances can be very deceiving. Or, or maybe what comes to your mind when you hear the word mirage? When I hear the word mirage, now if you start thinking of a casino, we need to talk about what you're doing with your free time. I, I picture cartoons and movies from when I'm a kid, and there's someone in the desert who is, who is dying of thirst. And as they walk, and in the cartoons, it's always this beautiful oasis that's there, and they run up to it only to find that it is sand, what looked like a body of water. And those of you that have traveled in desert areas or even long stretches of road in the sun know that sometimes it can look like there's a body of water, but it's, it's just an optical illusion. It's just a false appearance. So why am I talking about these false appearances, optical illusions? It's because there are false appearances of God's grace in the gospel, too. There are things that cause people to think they're seeing something there that's not really there. What they think is true about the grace of God isn't actually true at all. What they, what they think that they're seeing isn't accurate at all. It's an illusion. And they draw false conclusions from their false optics that they think they see going on there. And that's what we're dealing with as we now transition from Paul's teaching in uh, the first five chapters of Romans on how it is that we are justified by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. And now we transition in chapter six to address some of these false understandings that can arise from that teaching. And so how do you know that you're seeing grace as it really is? How do you know that it's not a mirage, that you're not misunderstanding it? Has it ever even crossed your mind that you might understand grace incorrectly, that what you think about it isn't what it actually is? Well, it hasn't crossed most people's mind to think that, and Paul's going to address some, some common illusions that people see as they look at the grace of God. And Romans 6 is going to clear up a lot of those misconceptions for us, a lot of misunderstanding about what the grace of God really is, what the, the results of justification by faith alone really are. In doing so, he's going to correct and silence the skeptic, the one who would hear Paul's teaching, hear the gospel's teaching on God's grace in salvation by faith alone, and would then make false accusations against God because of it. Make false accusations against the grace of God and even against the one who proclaims the gospel of God's grace. And so to help us see this, to see the truth about God's grace, how these false understandings about God's grace arose, we need to, to back up a little bit and get sort of a running start. So I want to quickly just review what we've seen in Romans so far, to help us understand where these false understandings come from, what Romans chapters 1 through 5 tell us, believers, is that God's grace has done the most incredible thing in your life. 
the most astounding thing. In, in the presence of your ungodliness, and Paul has a couple of times now in Romans called us ungodly prior to our conversion. In the presence of your own sin, in spite of your own foolish attempts to distinguish yourself from the rest of humanity, this humanity that Paul has shown us is under a one-size-fits-all indictment of condemnation from a holy God because of sin. The grace of God in the gospel, in the midst of all of that, came to you personally. With no self-reforming first on your part, with no self-improvement on your part, without efforts on your part to improve your standing with God, in fact, no desire for that whatsoever, the grace of God in the gospel simply came to you and said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe in his wrath-satisfying death in your place as your substitute. And there in that moment, while you were still an ungodly sinner, as the gospel pronounced that to you, proclaimed that to you, as God then, by his grace, gave you that gift of faith upon your belief in Jesus, God did the most amazing thing. He declared over your sinful, condemned life, he credited to you the status of Christ's own perfect righteousness. The only righteousness that is pleasing to God. There's no righteousness on our own that we work up through our good works and good intentions that God is pleased with. No, he gave to you that perfect righteousness with which he is pleased. A righteousness you didn't earn. A righteousness you don't deserve. A righteousness you didn't produce within yourself. Through grace, by faith, God simply gave it to you. So then Paul has painted this picture in the early chapters of Romans of all of humanity down in this pit. As Paul had came in graphic detail in the first three chapters, walked us right up to the edge of the pit to look down to see the, the filth. And he, and he places each one of us in a prison cell down in the bottom of this pit of filth and rebellion and condemnation. And so grace itself reached down into that pit of sin and filth that you found yourself in. Grace then proved itself to be superabounding in its power over sin, over death, over condemnation. And in order to save you, grace had to extract you personally out of that. Personally, as we've seen in the previous few weeks, out of your solidarity with the rest of sinful humanity. Again, as we saw in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, it's not that grace just casually picked you up like you were some lone pebble on the beach being uh, swaying back and forth in the waves of sin. That's not what grace did. Rather, the grace of God saved you. When you were justified, by faith alone, grace actually had to break you free from the concrete slab of all humanity in sin and death and condemnation. So it's not just that we're individual sinners committing individual personal sins. We are also corporately identified with the sin of all humanity. And in order to save us, grace had to overcome all of that. Our personal sin and our identification locked in in concrete with the rest of sinful humanity in Adam. We had to be set free. 
from our solidarity with the sinful human race in Adam and placed instead into a new people. Freed from this people and into a new people in Jesus Christ. And so what we have seen in Romans is that your personal experience of the grace of God saving you from your own personal sins, which is how we most often think about it, that actually rests within a larger work of the grace of God that rescued you from your solidified sinfulness with the whole human race. It's a much bigger thing that God is doing, and and that grace put you into Christ Jesus and his people. That's what Romans 5 tells us. So when we look at our salvation, it's even more astounding than we think. It's not just about little old you or little old me. Sin abounded in you personally, but the grace of God superabounded. But even more amazing is that where sin was abounding in humanity's solidified, set in stone slab of sin, grace also superabounded there over that corporate sinfulness. It's not just that the grace of God was enough to abound over my sin, it abounds over all of that. And God, by a gift of grace, justifies the ungodly one. Chapter 4, verse 5 tells us. Okay, so this is, this is why we needed to back up, because it's right here in this act of grace abounding over sin, breaking us free, not just from our own personal sins, but from our solidarity with the rest of sinful humanity. This is where the false appearances of grace begin to arise. This is where our weak minds and our weak flesh, our poor spiritual sight, are easily fooled by false appearances, or we come to wrong conclusions about the grace of God, and we start seeing mirages regarding grace. We start seeing mirages about how, how it works to be justified by faith. And these mirages can actually devastate our walk with Christ. And so in Romans 6, Paul is going to address these mirages. He's going to address these false optics that we, we think we understand when we look at the grace of God and salvation. He's going to address these things because believers need to see through them to the true grace realities that are behind them. Because if we don't see through the mirage, if we believe the distortions of God's grace, it will have disastrous effects in our life. It, It may turn us into a skeptic. There are many out there who are skeptics of the grace of God. Many even within the church. It'll cause you to believe lies. It'll cause you to doubt God. It will, in fact, lead you to sin. And so to help us to see through the distortions we're tempted to believe, Paul begins now in chapter 6 with the most extensive teaching in the New Testament on sanctification. That, That although we are saved by faith alone and not our own works, that the faith that saves is actually a faith that transforms. And herein lies many of the distortions that come because of the grace of God. We're we're not just declared righteous as we're justification again, as we've gone through Romans, is a declaration. God declares us. He credits to us righteousness. But we're not just declared righteous. We are made righteous. Sanctification literally means that we're set apart. We're we're set apart from the world. We're set apart from the flesh. We're set apart from the devil. We are called to righteousness. We are transformed day by day by day by the power of the Holy Spirit into the likeness of Jesus Christ. 
And it's only as we understand sanctification that we will not fall for these optical illusions, these false understandings of what the grace of God is and how it works. And so Paul begins this teaching now on sanctification by dismantling the first mirage that people are tempted to fall into when they hear the gospel taught, as Paul has taught us now these first five chapters. He says this in verse one. What shall we say then? Well, what does that mean? In light of everything I just said to you, okay, we, we can look back now for over five chapters. In light of all of that, what should we say in the light of that? And what's the mirage? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? There's two different faulty conclusions we could draw from that statement. The first is, and people believe both of these things. The first is, it doesn't matter how we live because grace covers all of it. We can see this exampled for us over and over and over. How many of you know, you don't even have to raise your hand because I know you all know people like this. How many of you know people who, let's say, on, on social media, one post is a Bible verse, one post is something graphically perverse, and the next post is about God's grace and how he forgives all of us, and we're back to the Bible again. How many of you people know people who live lives that are totally in opposition to the teaching of God's word and yet are thoroughly confident that they are in wonderful standing with God? That's this mirage right here that they're believing. That's, that's what's going on. In other words, this thinking is, since we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, sin doesn't even factor into that equation. Grace didn't even touch sin. It didn't even bother with sin. In other words, grace didn't come to you down in that pit of filth and go, clean yourself up, fix yourself and I will get you out of this. It didn't tell you, address your sin, and then you can be saved. No. Grace was free. Grace didn't cost you anything. And so it appears to some that because that's how we are saved, that grace doesn't actually care about sin. Sin all you want, because we're under grace and not the law. The problem is, that's a heresy. It's called antinomianism. Antinomianism literally means against the law. It stands in opposition to God's law. It's the belief that a Christian can live contrary to the moral law of God revealed in Scripture. And then all of that's fine and grace doesn't really care. Grace just kind of keeps on forgiving you and it's good enough. God's not upset about any of it. It's a gross and destructive heresy. And it is so prevalent. R.C. Sproul says this. I would say that one of the greatest problems in evangelical Christianity today is the pervasive influence of what we call antinomianism. Antinomianism says, I am saved by faith, therefore I never have to be concerned in the slightest about obeying the law. Antinomianism says that the commandments of God have no binding influence on my conscience. That's not just a distortion of Christianity, Sproul says. 
It's a fundamental denial of Christianity. Yet this notion is commonplace in Christian circles. Good works that follow from your conversion will not count for your justification, but if they are not there, it proves that faith is not there either, end quote. He is so right. In evangelical Christian circles, evangelical, which used to mean Bible-believing Christian circles, this heresy is so commonplace. Do what you want. It's going to be fine. And Sproul says, we're not saved by our good works, but if our life doesn't bear fruit, we have no reason to believe that we have saving faith. He's absolutely right. The second conclusion that people draw from this is, we should sin more, in fact, because that glorifies God even more. As if sin and grace somehow have a mutually beneficial relationship. Grace benefits by my sinning. The more I sin, here's the thinking, the more I sin, the more grace super abounds. So I should sin even more so that God will pour out more and more grace. It's like when I go golfing, I often make the same joke just to cover for my great shame at how terrible I am. Where I say, actually, I'm getting my money's worth out of this more than almost anyone out here on this course because I'm hitting it so very many more times than they are. Really, I'm succeeding. No, what it actually means is I'm a bad golfer. That's what it actually means. It's not a success. That's essentially what's being said here, though. We should sin more because it glorifies God more because he has to pour more grace out on us. That sounds stupid. I hope it sounds stupid. I hope you hear that and go, that is dumb. No one would ever believe that. Here's the problem. This heresy has been found within the church in every single generation since the very start. It's why Paul's addressing it right here. It's been there from the start and it continues today. We can almost understand how people get there. Because it's actually true that in justification... Where there was sin, as we saw in chapter 5, grace superabounded far above, far beyond that sin. And so where the mirage comes in is the faulty assumption that gets drawn from that. Since it works that way, here's the thinking, since it works that way in justification, it only makes sense that it must work that way all the way through our whole Christian walk. Since in our justification, when we were dead in sin, under the reign and power of sin and death, grace came in and superabounded over that with no regard whatsoever for our own works, for our own righteousness, which was non-existent. Since that's true, it must be true for the whole rest of my Christian life that grace doesn't care about my sin. I can just do whatever I want. That's the mirage, that grace tolerates sin. That because, because grace has superabounded over sin, it must mean that the more I sin, the more grace I get. So I'm free to just keep on sinning because grace is going to just keep on abounding. Friends, that's a mirage. It's a false understanding. Mirage is that grace tolerates sin. Even more than that, that grace increases because of sin, but grace does not make morally careless people. 
The grace of God does not result in someone who doesn't care about their sin. That's what Paul goes on to show us. Look again now. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Look at these next words in verse two. By no means. Are we to continue in sin, he says. So he's pointing back to that state that we were in before justification. That state that we were in, down in that pit, down in that prison cell, in the midst of our filth and condemnation and rebellion against God. And Paul says, should we keep on living that way? Should we continue in sin? It doesn't just mean we occasionally fall into sin. It's more than that. It's the habitual presence of sin. It is willful, continual, established pattern of sin. Should we keep living like we're still down in that pit? And the slanderous question is, should we just continue to walk like that? Just continue to live like that since grace will abound. Can we just keep living the same way we did before our conversion and Paul answers that slanderous question with absolute clarity, by no means. Your translation may say, may it never be, or even God forbid. This this is the strongest statement of repudiation in New Testament Greek, and Paul uses it numerous times throughout the book of Romans as he is answering the objections that come to the gospel. It's an expression of outrage, of revulsion. How could you ever ask a question like that, is is, is this response. In other words, the gospel rejects this notion in the strongest possible terms. The gospel recoils at the thought of sinning that we might get more grace. The gospel's response to the question of if we should continue in sin is God forbid In no way is the abundance of God's grace an invitation to sin. The grace of God does not tolerate sin. The grace of God does not encourage sin. Such thinking is totally out of bounds. Any any consideration of that is off the table entirely. He tells us why. Verse 2, by no means How can we who died to sin still live in it? The Christian cannot continue in the sin in which they once lived. The Christian cannot continue in that sin. They're not capable of it. A Christian is not able to continue living in the sin in which they once lived. Now certainly we all continue to sin, don't we? And we will all continue to sin until we're absent from the body and present with the Lord. But we are no longer, Christians are no longer living lives of habitual, unrepentant sin. That is not how Christians live. That is not the result that grace has in our lives. We're no longer down in that pit of moral filth and rebellion. We have been made new. And so Paul says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Who's the we here? Who's Paul talking about? The we who have died to sin. Well, it is all of those who are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And Paul's answer to the question is clear. This question, how can we who lived in sin, or we who 
died to sin still live in it? The answer is clear. Those, those who have died to sin, who've been broken free from their solidarity with Adam, who have been justified by faith, freed from the reign of sin and death, those people cannot still live in that sin. They cannot still live under the reign of sin and death. It's impossible. It's impossible because we have been totally freed. Remember what we saw at the end of chapter five. We've been taken out of Adam and placed into Christ. It would be impossible for those who are in Christ to continue to live as if they were in Adam. To do so would only be proof that you're actually still in Adam. If our lives have not been changed, if our lives have not been made new, it's not proof that we can be in Christ and still live the same as we were down in that pit of filth. It's actually proof that we've not truly been converted. That's how serious this is. So, so it's not as though grace excuses sin. It's not as though grace turns a blind eye to sin. Grace reveals to us that this is a matter of life and death. This is how serious it is. Again, though, that's not to say that there won't be individual acts of sin because we can all just look at our own lives and know that there will be, right, Christians? But you're no longer walking the same path that you once were. You're no longer in that pit in which you once lived. You've been freed from your prison cell. You have been broken loose from the concrete slab of your solidarity and sin and death with Adam and the rest of sinful humanity. The new birth is that powerful, that dynamic, that it takes you out of where you were and places you somewhere new. The grace of God superabounds over sin and death such that we do not live, cannot live the way we once did. So Paul says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And the clear answer is, we can't. We can't. If we have died to sin, we cannot still live in it. At the moment of our salvation, when we were justified, in an instant, the overruling power of sin that once dominated you, that once controlled you, was put to death once and for all. That's what Paul is telling us here. So Stephen Lawson provides a helpful description of what this death to sin looks like that I, I want to share with you. He gives nine words that describe the death that takes place in the life of the believer at the moment of conversion. I'm going to give you eight of them. Um, he's smarter than I am, but I thought eight were more helpful than nine, so I'm going with these eight. First word is this death is a spiritual death. This death to sin that we have died is a spiritual death. So it doesn't refer to physical death to sin and its effects. We are still having that go on in the world around us and in our own bodies, are we not? Sickness, for instance, is an outworking of the curse of sin in our physical bodies. Instead, it is a spiritual death to sin's power and reign. Sin doesn't rule over you anymore. You have been set free Second, he says it's a past death. This death in the life of the believer is something that already happened. It's accomplished in our justification. It is a fact. 
of the history of our lives that this happened. We died to sin, just as surely as we were credited with the righteousness of Christ. Third, it's, it's an immediate death. Like justification, it occurred in one specific point in time. It didn't happen over a matter of months or years. It happened immediately at the moment of regeneration. There was a sudden, instantaneous break with a person's past life and bondage under the reign of sin. Now, in sanctification, that is working itself out over the whole rest of our lives. But this having died to sin happened in a moment, and it was done. And now we're seeing that work out in our lives for the rest of our lives. Fourth, it is comprehensive death. We who were justified by faith have died to sin. So, so it's not as though our head died to sin. Okay, we really understood the gospel and we know that this transaction took place. So I know in my head that I'm dead to sin, but my heart and will is still kind of living in sin. That's not how it works. Imagine a doctor at the hospital delivering this news to a family. Unfortunately, your loved one's head has died. The one piece of good news I have for you is his legs and feet have not died, and so you can at least still dance with your loved one. Well, that doesn't make any sense at all. It's totally impossible. It's, it's not something that could ever make sense. So it is with our death to sin. So not as though part of us died to sin and another part didn't. You have been given a new mind, Christian. You have been given new affections, Christian. You have been given a new will. In totality, you died to sin and have been made alive to God. Fifth, it's a radical death. We're made totally new. There's a, there is a radical transformation in the life of the believer. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there's that language again, in Christ, there, there, there's probably no, more, no truth that could be more helpful and practical in your life than to understand that to be a Christian means that you are in Christ. Our union with Christ is perhaps the most essential thing we could understand as Christians that would have a transformative effect in our lives. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is a radical death that transforms everything. Six, it's a noticeable death. It results in a transformed life. It, it results in bearing fruit in keeping with salvation such that you should be able to examine your life and say, I am not who I once was. Others should be able to look at your life and say, he is not who he once was. Again, we're not talking about sinless perfection in this life. But we are talking about fruit in keeping with salvation. Seven, it's a permanent death. Paul says there in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the old has passed away, the new has come. Our old life is gone. It's never coming back. It is finished. The old man is dead and buried. It is a, it is a once for all final act of God to cause us to die to sin. Eighth, then, finally, it is a vicarious death. Paul makes this explicit in the verses we'll see next week, but let me just read for you the very next verse, verse three. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus 
were baptized into his death. How is it that we have died to sin? It's because we were brought in Christ into his death. Lawson then says, when Jesus died, you died. When he was raised, you were raised. This is an accomplished, finished fact. Friends, this is part of what it means to be in Christ. Our lives are hidden in him, that we are a new creation in him. And this isn't idealism. This isn't like, oh, it would be nice if that were the case. This is the fact for every single Christian. This is the reality of our lives. And so then, if there has never been this spiritual death in your life, if you are continuing to walk in sin just like before your conversion, then likely what that means is that you are without Christ. Likely what that means is you have not been broken free from your solidarity with Adam and placed in Christ. And friend, if you are without Christ, you are without hope. There is no hope to be found. Many times over these last number of months, and I confess to you that I, I, I've said this before, I, I'm one who's prone to depression. I can't exactly put my finger on it all the time. Sometimes I know exactly what's making me feel the way I'm feeling. This week has been a particularly bad week. I was just confessing this to my wife last night. It's been a particularly bad week, and I can't put my finger on anything that's the cause of it. And I've been this way for years and years and years. This isn't me like working out some sort of therapy here this morning, I promise. Here's what gives me strength in the middle of whatever it is that's going on. When I look at the world around me and I think, what is America going to be like five years from now? When I look at this virus and I think, are we ever going to get to just like leave our homes and do what we want to do again? Whatever it is that, that would drive me to despair, here is what I remind myself. I am in Christ. My life is hidden in him. My life is hidden in Christ. And that is where all of my hope comes from. Because I know that one billion years from now, there's not a single pain or heartache, there's not a single depression that I face right now that will feel like anything to me. In fact, I'll look back on anything I've ever gone through in my life and I will say, God, I now see your kindness to me in that. And a billion years from now, when I am being freshly astounded by the grace and power and glory of God. All of these things that I'm going through in my life won't have even a hint of hopelessness. We'll, we'll see God's good purposes in all of it. And friends, if we will understand these truths right now, it will change the way we live our lives. It will change the way we feel. This is where hope is found. But if you are not in Christ, there's no reason to hope. There's no reason to look at the world around us and say, I think everything's going to work out pretty well. There's no reason to leave your house when there's a virus because if you die, that's the worst possible thing that could ever happen to you if you're not in Christ. This is where hope is found. 
And so if you are not in Christ, if your life is testifying that you are not in Christ, you are still in Adam, that you are still under the rule and reign and death, God calls you to himself now to turn from your sin, to run to Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is God's word to you this morning. Call out to him to save you. Call out to him to give you the gift of faith. Call out to him by his grace to, to, to justify you, to pronounce you righteous with the righteousness of Christ, to make you a new person. Come to Jesus. He is your only hope. Without him, you are hopelessly lost. With him, you have eternal life. And Christian, meditate on what you know to be true so that you will believe that, that you will stand in that, and you'll have hope and strength and the promise of God's grace. Amen? Let's stand up together. Almighty God, we rejoice in your saving grace. We rejoice in your love. We rejoice in your power to save. Lord, though the days around us are dark and evil, though we live in a world that has fallen and has been marred by sin, Lord, we rejoice that you are God, rule and reign over all things, that you are accomplishing all of your good purposes, that your plans for us are good and faithful and true, that we can rest in you, trust in you, hope in you, and, and rest secure in your promise of eternal life. And so we look again to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Pray, Lord, that by your grace you would cause us to be more faithful, more mindful of your gospel. Increasingly bold to proclaim the truth of your gospel in a world that desperately needs hope and is dying without it. Pray, Lord, that you be glorified in us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.